Welcome to another edition of Now is the Time with Steve Bergson on Hebrew Nation Radio. Now is the Time is a production of MTOI, Messianic Torah Observant Israel. For more information, visit mtoi.org. Now, here's Steve. All right, so today we're continuing in the Are You Covenanted series. This is part 21. And I think, of course, I know I say this a lot with all the teachings, but I think this is really the foundational thing is to understand the relationship through the filter, through the, the understanding of what covenant is. And so as we go into relationship with each other and with our creator, this idea of covenant I think is really critical. Now we did spend a lot of time up until the last week or two focusing mostly on the idea of the mechanics of covenant. Okay, that it's an agreement, a formal one, usually between two or more people to do or not do specified things. All right? And on the human level, when it's between Yahweh and mankind, there's consequences that are very clearly laid out. There's always consequences laid out, though, in covenants. I mean, even between two people. And it's just individuals doing it. But there's, there's going to be consequences on the human side because Yahweh's not going to break his side. But if we break our side, there are consequences. And that's what we hear about the word cursings. You know, we get the cursing section that says, and if you break covenant, is really what he's saying, then you'll receive these curses. It's worded more like, and if you don't, follow my direction, if you don't listen to me, if you don't obey my voice. But that was essentially the covenant, right? We agreed to obey his voice, and he agreed to take us as his people and provide all of our needs. And so we just, for the last couple of weeks now, have been trying to focus on the um, approach, the other peripheral core, I say peripheral, but the core needs to being able to function in covenant, And we started talking about understanding and knowledge and wisdom. Because without those, you're not going to behave, you know, correctly within this framework of covenant. Because the covenant between us and our creator is just like, again, in some ways, the covenant between, say, a husband and a wife. Because, see, I can covenant with my wife and say, okay, I'm going to provide you with a house and I'm going to take care of these and all these things mechanically and physically. But what about the emotional What about the relational? What about the other aspects of a relationship than just providing physical things? I mean, you could do that for your children. If you never hug them, never kiss them, never hold them, but you can give them food, you can give them shelter, you can provide for their needs. That's not a whole whole lot of a relationship there. And they're not going to flourish, and it's not going to work. And so in Proverbs, we've been reading in the the chapters we've gotten through so far, we read chapters 1 and 2, is that we really have an understanding, hopefully now, that there's wisdom necessary for us. And I think that a lot of times we think, and we just there, I just use the word think, so that's kind of part of the problem. We think, we intellectualize that this is about smarts. How smart do I have to be? And it's not about intelligence. He never mentions intelligence anywhere. He mentions wisdom. Now, it is intelligent to seek wisdom. That's the only level of intelligence you really need. You have to be smart enough to realize that you need wisdom. And in seeking wisdom, we gain understanding and knowledge, and knowledge from the point of view of relationship. Okay, so that's our framework going into chapter 3 here as we're going to continue reading this section. Now, remember, at the end of chapter 2... It was warning us against those that had forsaken their covenant or forgotten their covenant. This is in verse 17, where they were warned to avoid and to be careful of those who have strayed from the path. See, in the covenant, we're instructed, we're guided that there's a path, a path that leads to the kingdom, a path of righteousness, a way that works. And that there are steps to take along that path. And that relationship in this chapter here that we've been reading is now going to be brought into a more clear picture in terms of how it functions beyond just the mechanics of it. See, your motivation in anything you do is based on what you are wanting or not wanting what you're doing to result in. In other words, what is the why? Why are you doing it? We're... we're, we're um, hopefully covenanted to agree to keep commandments, to obey our creator. But why? Why did you agree to do that? Well, because hopefully you wanted that relationship with him that comes from that covenant. 
because he's desiring to take you as his people, a cherished possession. And we're to look at him and be, be excited looking at him as our father, as a father figure. Of course, a lot of us did not have a good father figure, and that's part of the problem here. And so we don't know what that's like. We don't know what that's ex- the experience of that. Now, one of the things that we're hopefully going to be doing here in the next year or so is taking the opportunity to refocus on what does the male roles and female roles look like. Because we have multiple roles. Okay? You can be a son, but then you could also be a husband, but then you can also be a father. And they're all very different roles. You don't use the same skill sets as a son as you do to be a husband, or a husband to be a father, and vice versa, and mix them up any way you want. They're different skill sets that require. Same thing for the daughter, who also has the opportunity to be a wife and also has the opportunity to be a mother. And what about being a brother or a sister? I mean, there are all of these different roles that we kind of have to learn to be successful at. And we're only going to really make the tough adjustments. Remember, the process that we're going through is a transformation, right? We're going to transform, hopefully, from what we are into what our Creator and the Son are, right? We're going to transform into the image of Yeshua. And that transformation process isn't always fun. It's not always going to be enjoyable. It's going to be very challenging and painful at times. So why would you deal with all of that stuff and go through all of that? That's the good question. Why? And that's where wisdom, knowledge, and understanding are going to help you. You have to understand and have the wisdom of the choice. It takes wisdom to trust him over yourself. It takes wisdom to do what he says, even though you can't see how that possibly makes any sense. It takes wisdom to step out, quote-unquote, on faith, in trust and in belief, emunah, the Hebrew. It takes wisdom to do that when you can't imagine or see how that could possibly work. And we have example after example of that. You see that in scriptures. The most really uh, visualized one or easy to picture is the Israelites stuck at the sea, with the Egyptians behind them, the mountains around them, and the water in front of them. And they're all, what are they doing? They're all freaking out, saying, oh, this is great. You took us out here just to kill us. See, because they could not embrace emunah. The trusting, the faith, the belief that this whole process, which they weren't even covenanted yet, they were heading towards the covenant place, the covenant-making location at Sinai. But, you know, when you look at the four cups that we talk about at Passover, and we read them this week as part of the Torah portion, you know, it talks about that it's a process of, and we talked about this during the teachings last Passover, this process of being delivered and redeemed and brought out. And it's from that place that we covenant. Because then he brought them to Sinai to covenant. Now, you have all had these experiences. You have been delivered from things. You have been redeemed from things. When you learned about the the redeeming uh, actions that Yeshua took. See, a lot of people will be confused by, you know, this idea. We talked about this actually when I was in Canada real briefly. The idea that, you know, we are responsible in some way for this this generational thing of the sins of our fathers or what we do is going to somehow curse our children. Because we talk about and I did talk about this up there, and some of you and I have talked about this. What if your children were raised so well in Christianity or something else, and now you're trying to kind of steer them in the direction of Torah observance, and they're they're just not having it? And then you start to feel guilty because you're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Well, remember, everybody has to walk out their own salvation. This is an individual activity done in a group setting. Okay? Coming into relationship with our Creator is a private, individual thing done in the context of a group, of a nation, of a people. All the people of the world are doing this as a group, but they're also doing it individually. But it's primarily a one-on-one thing. It's between you. Paul says that you need to walk out your own salvation in fear and trembling in Philippians 2.12, and he doesn't say you got to walk out mine or I have to walk out yours. And nowhere am I responsible for yours. I'm responsible for what I say, teach, or instruct, just in case you actually do what I say. Because then I'm responsible for the one who had given that instruction. But I'm not responsible if you don't do it. I'm not responsible for you in any of those ways. 
you're responsible for you, but you're also responsible for learning how to do what you're doing in the context of the dynamic of a group. So that being said, you know, we're talking about this idea of redeeming. Because when people worry about, well, but I did all these horrible sinning things and my children have learned from me and now they're doing this. Or I raised them this way and now they're doing that. Remember Ezekiel 18 in that chapter, it talks about if the father is righteous and the son is not, the son's still going to be responsible for what he does. Or if the father was, was a sinner, was, was not uh, righteous, and the son is righteous, the son still is only responsible for what he does. And so people say, well, then that ruins and eliminates the whole need for Messiah. No. Messiah did not have anything to do with your status because of your sin or not. What the Messiah did was he gave you the opportunity, if you chose to repent and make teshuvah, to have the penalty for your sin taken care of. That's a different thing than the way most people would think. Because they'll say, well, one person cannot pay the price for another person. No, if I sin... You cannot pay the price for me. Neither can Yeshua. What Yeshua can do is pay the price for the penalty if I stop sinning. If I make teshuva. If I repent. Okay, what he did has no value to those who continue sinning. Now, he did do it for everybody to make that opportunity available if anybody wanted to choose to stop sinning and start moving in the right direction. And that doesn't mean you're expected to be perfect. You know that. But it means that when you are aware, as soon as you realize, I have just done something really dumb. I should never have done that. And then you repent of it, and you turn around, you get back on the path. That's when the blood comes into play. Okay, so as we're going through all of this, understand that that's a big part of that whole thing in Exodus, where he's going to redeem us. That's the redemption. Paying the price. But he's only paying the price if you pay the price. Or I should say that the price he paid only can be applied to what you're dealing with if you pay the price. Think of it this way. If I give you a great coupon that you can redeem at a store, you don't get to use it sitting in your living room, never going online or never going to the store. You have to actually go and redeem the coupon. So just having it didn't do you any good at all. Does that make sense? You are following the, the same kind of correlation there? So what Yeshua did only benefits you if you do your part of making it a value, which is you have to then decide to embrace the path that leads to life. Because you earned death. And because you repent, didn't change that. Okay? Let's say I walked over and I stabbed to death or shoot somebody. Okay? I deserve jail, death, whatever that is. Now I can repent and never have that issue again, never desire to do it again, I could totally repent of it. Is that going to change the mind of the judge, the courts, or anybody else? Or am I still going to jail? I'm still going to jail. I still have to pay the price. We, thankfully, on a spiritual level, get to repent and make the change in our life, and then we don't have to pay the price. Now, there may still be consequences that we pay, because after all, our actions sometimes do bring natural consequences. So you may lose a marriage, you may lose a relationship with other people, whatever. You may lose something and have to pay a penalty or price for the foolishness of some of the decisions that you've made. But the ultimate price, the death penalty that we've earned, we're redeemed from it. And that's all because we made a covenant. Let's bring this around and back to... Because all of those things that Yeshua did are of no value if you're out of covenant. Therefore, the covenanted people. Now, he didn't say, I only die for the covenanted people. What he did was he died for the whole world so that anybody that would covenant at any point would be able to benefit from that. Hopefully, that's clarifying and clear, you know, clearing up some things. And it has nothing to do yet with chapter 3 where we're going. But I just wanted to make sure that we're bringing that together because I think we need to understand that what we're dealing with here in in Proverbs, and I think what Solomon was really trying to do with his, with his children and writing these things down is help us to figure out why, embrace why are we doing this. Because I've had some of you say to me, oh, I don't know why I'm doing this. It doesn't seem to be working. I've lost my family. I lost my job. I lost this. I lost that. But what does it benefit man to gain the whole world and lose his life? We have verses that say these things. By the way, whenever you're doing whatever and you are dealing with something and a verse like that comes to you, 
That's got to help you believe in the veracity and the truth of this book as a source. Because how true these things are when you see them and you experience them and saying, he wrote it down for us to be reminded that, yes, you could gain all kinds of things in this physical world, but what would it value you? Same token on the other side of it. Does it really matter that you lose some of the physical things if you do gain life? If where, where is it ultimately taking you? What are you ultimately going to receive? And so what I'm noticing in the body, and that's kind of why I've gone on this sort of rabbi trail here, okay, is what I'm noticing in the body is that we are lacking the why focus. We're trying to figure out the how, the when, the where, the what, and all that stuff. And that's good. You need to do that. But you're missing a lot of times the why, which is the, that's the fuel of doing the what, the where, the when, and how, and everything else. Because if the why was strong enough, there would never be a thought in your head when your boss says, I'm sorry, but we just changed everything. Everybody needs to work Saturdays now. And you'd be like, I can't do it. Well, I'll fire you. Go ahead and fire me. My why is bigger than that. See, if your why is big enough, you'll figure it out. But then I won't have a job. So what? Your why was I trust in him. That's why I'm doing this. I'm doing this why? Because I fully trust in him. That's your why. Not your why being, I want to live forever. You know what? That kind of does motivate you to some degree. But you know what? That's, that's one of those that, you know, ethereal things you can't really grasp a hold of really. I mean, it's more that you just don't want to die than you really want to live forever. You don't know what you do forever. That's not a big motivator. You can get excited about doing something tomorrow or doing something today because there's something you want to go and do and enjoy. But most of you are excited about eternal life just because you don't want to die. Because dying doesn't sound like it's any fun. So who wants to do that? But that's not a big enough motivator. But when we get to the, because I want to be pleasing in my father's sight, and I really want to hear those words, well done, good and trustworthy servant. Or I really want to have that total peace that comes from full emunah, full trust and belief and faith. I don't want to live in fear anymore. I don't want to live in anxiety and in insecurity and all of that. Because those are the opposite to emunah. But if you could fully have your life immersed in emunah, you wouldn't have any of those things. No insecurities, no anxieties, no concerns, no fears. You know, in Matthew, Yeshua says, you know, why do you stress about what you're going to eat in your clothing and all these things that the, the, the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles worry about? Don't you believe your Father in heaven can provide you all those things? And quite frankly, almost everybody listening to me right now, whether it's on recording in the future or right now, but who's listening, you probably live in a place that has indoor plumbing, abundant access to food, shelter, a way to provide. Now, maybe you don't have the car you want, or maybe the house you want, and maybe you're renting or whatever, or you're not going out to restaurants all the time, but you have food, you have shelter, you have clothing. I mean, we have so much more than actually kings even had if you go back a few generations Kings didn't have what you have. I mean, a lot of people think about a king in a castle. You ever been in a castle? You want to live in a castle? Cold, damp, drafty, no indoor, no, no uh, central air and heat, nothing. No indoor plumbing either, okay? So what, what does it take for us then to start to really work on our why? Why I'm doing this? And so I think that's part of the wisdom, understanding and knowledge that Shlomo, that Solomon is trying to, you know, actually I should say that Yahweh is trying to get to us through Solomon, is to really work on that. Because most of your choices and decisions would be so much easier if you were strong enough on your why. See, some of us, you know, there's this thing I heard a long, long time ago, but it's so true. Most of us don't have in life what we want, Ultimately, like the bigger things that we really want in our lives because we're too busy getting what we want right now. And we're not willing to delay gratification or to put something aside. But that's really a lot of what Torah is talking about. Can you put aside all the me, 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 I, 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 now, now, now stuff 
to think about the bigger picture, to understand what we're really trying to get, uh, where we're trying to get to, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish. Are we really trying to transform into Yeshua? Or are we just trying to mechanically get the rubber stamp of a smiley face or whatever saying, okay, you kept this and you didn't eat that and you did this. And This is about forever in a community. And that's going to change... Let me start that again. That's going to require us to change from who we are now in a lot of our ways so that we can be more like him. That's not to say you'll stop being personality-wise the unique person you are because that brings the color and the flavor and all the other wonderful things to the mix. We're not going to be this very sort of Stepford-looking, everybody's, you know, robotically the same. But we have to become in our way that we focus on each other in terms of how I love you and how we love each other and how we love him. We learn that from Yeshua how much we care about each other, or how much we just get so upset and care about the nonsense. You know, I said this, and I do say this probably at every funeral that I have an opportunity to be a part of, let the passing of the person inspire us, because, I mean, almost, you can't help yourself. When somebody leaves and has is, 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 is moved forward into the waiting stage for the, the resurrection, and you can't interact with them anymore, there are, there are so many thoughts that happen on, I wish I'd done more of this. I wish I'd done less of that. I wish I spent more time. You have all these regrets. And you know why you have those regrets? Because you got caught up in wasting your life on nonsense. How much time do you spend on all of that dumb stuff? Is that wisdom? No. Does it show that you have any understanding of what the big picture is? No. Does it show that your relationship is really with him or is it with all this other nonsense? Where is our focus? Because that's what the covenant was all about. Really, it's the two great commands, loving him and loving each other. But why? You might be saying, but I don't like people. And I know, know, you may find this surprising, but I know a lot of people. And I know why you don't like them. Because all of us can irritate the you-know-what out of everybody. All of us. I know why you don't like me. And part of the reason is because you know I don't care. That you don't like me. But instead of us getting our emotions under control so that we can put them in the right way towards you, and I could just really be emotionally feeling that, 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 that appropriate love towards you and be able to receive, which is also for some of us even the harder challenge, to receive it back. Because some of us can give it out but can't receive it. That's what the whole point of covenant is. The whole point is that relationship for forever. Okay? The covenant isn't just so that you can have, as it says in Deuteronomy, no, no problem with the rain and no problem with fertility and have abundant food and all that. It'll be safe. Yes, it's about that, but it's about the community being able to live together in shalom, in peace, in joy to overflowing in abundance. Yeshua said, I came so that your joy would be fulfilled. Of course, if you're going to use the Christian way of looking at things, that means there's no more joy. I mean, after all, he came to fulfill the law, so the law is done away with. So stop being happy and joyful because he came to do away with it. It's ridiculous. Okay? He want, the whole point of this is to be a blessing. Yahweh wanted, when he made all of these things, with Yeshua and they, you know, the Father and the Son put all this together, is because they wanted to spend forever in this relationship thing called the body, called the bride, called the family. And so it's about learning that. And we are so disconnected from what that could look like or should look like because we've been doing it man's way for so long and man has no idea how to do this. So what do we do? We fight, we get offended, you know, we, we, we um, are callous and inconsiderate. We do all these dumb things because we're too self-absorbed, self-whatever, and just are not changing Okay, the main reason the body is where it's at, and we've talked about this many times, is because we won't make that last step, which is the step from immature child into full-grown adult maturity. 
And in order to covenant, I'm going to tie this right back around. You, you got to covenant as a mature adult. Are children allowed to sign contracts even in our society today? No. Why? Because society doesn't believe them to be mature enough to understand what they're doing. That's reasonable. And so the same thing with covenant. This is why I don't immerse children. Because I want them to be able to make the eight declarations and understand what they're doing. By the way, I may not immerse you even if you're 30 or 40 if you don't seem to understand what you're doing. Because it's not about age chronologically. It's about are you in enough maturity to be able to understand the commitments you made. And by the way, I know I was at almost all of you who were baptized here in, in within this. I was there when you did it. I heard what you said. And quite frankly, I have a permission and license to come up to you and get in your face now when you're not doing it because you did it in front of everybody. And you made those declarations. But you know, here's the problem. You wouldn't handle it. Because you're not mature enough to handle correction or encouragement coming in a corrective way. And that's part of what we're reading about here as we're getting into Proverbs, the idea of a father correcting a son. Because it's coming from a literal and metaphor of a father instructing his children, his son. Because that's the way it's worded. My son, if you accept my words, my son, do not forget my Torah, my son. So it's talking from a father to a son. And we are known as the what? The children of Israel. And I always jokingly say, and you notice it never refers to the adults of Israel. Because we still seem to want to act like children. And we're lacking that maturity to grow up. And so this is our challenge. It's not so much the challenge of, well, how do I keep Shabbat right? Or how do I keep a feast right? Or how do I eat correctly? You know what? All of us can learn those things. It's not that tough. But how do you delight in Shabbat? How do you how do you have your why so big that there's nothing someone could do to tempt you to break it? They can't threaten you. They can You know when you read the story in the book of Maccabees about Hannah and her sons, they were they were each lined up and told, "Eat this pig or we're going to skin you alive and boil you in oil." What would you do? Well, Yahweh wouldn't want me to die. I'll eat the pig. Really? How, how, where's your emunah and your why? All right, so they kill you. Well, it just means you get to the kingdom faster. That's all. Not faster, but it means your journey's done waiting on the kingdom. Is there anything really wrong with that? Does anybody have any illusions that you're not going to die? Does it really matter how? I mean, I know you'd prefer it to be less painful in, in a painful way, but death is death. And then there's a resurrection. And so why don't we do all that we can to focus on the things that qualify us for the resurrection and not so much worry about the life now and the body now and the physical now some of you may be blessed enough to just go in your sleep others may be not so blessed to go in some violent way either way you're still dead i don't want to say that in a callous way and now you're waiting how you ended up in that position doesn't really matter what matters is how did you live up to that moment did you live striving to be in covenant? That's what's going to matter. Not the method of your life ending, but what did you do up to that moment? Because, you know, you hear about people and, you you know, well, they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you know, you got six months to live or you got two years to live, it is. And then all of a sudden they're ready to change everything because they want to do everything that they could possibly do in that time. Well, why did you need that to motivate you? How many years did you waste because nobody... I'm going to tell you all right now, you're all going to die. I don't know when. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But you don't know when either. So why are we wasting time? You know, I often joke about how I was going to do a teaching called Motivated by Mortality. This is it right here. Not the name of this teaching, but you need to be motivated to work on your covenant keeping, which is about your transforming to his image, learning how to relationally relate to each other and to him. That's the covenant, the two great commands, loving each other and loving him. But no, we're too busy wasting time and, you know, watching shows and movies and video games and whatever else we're doing. Or if we're not doing all of that stuff, because then we go, well, I don't do that stuff. All right, so we're too busy, you know, being angry or holding grudges or not talking to people because of some dumb thing that happened. 
Well, you don't understand that person, blah, 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 blah. And who else can, who, who is there out there that doesn't have one of those stories? Where they could choose to like not talk to whoever because of blah, 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 blah. How many marriages are ending because of that kind of dumb stuff? You know, when I counsel marriage, which is a covenant, I almost, at times, I almost uh, have to admit to people, say, look, I'm sorry, but you know what? For your marriage to work, you're almost going to have to get a divorce. Meaning, you're going to have to come to that place where you start to realize what you really want or not. It has to go to that edge sometimes. That's sad. I'm not saying it to attack you. You know, my wife and I have marriage like anybody else. We have our wonderful and we have our challenges because any kind of relationship is an, it's an incredible, hard, struggling thing to do because you are in it. Did you catch that? That catches both sides. Okay? Relationships are brutally hard to do because it's involving you. <laughs> now, if you became more like Yeshua, the relationship would be much better. Of course, most of you think, well, if my spouse became more like Yeshua, it would be much better. Oh, yes, it would. But also, even, why don't you work on you? Because in the relationship that he teaches us about, we don't get to work on him. So see, that's an example of how it always works. All you can work on is you. Now, thankfully, in the relationship with him, he's perfect, and we're not, and we can work on that. Now, in your marriage, spousal things, and with your children, all your other relationships, everybody's imperfect. So you're always dealing with imperfect. But sadly, even with the Israelites, they had to go to the point where they broke the covenant so that they could realize what they lost. Because then they lost all of the blessings of covenant. Guess what? We read these accounts, and what does it do? It motivates us, doesn't it? At least it should, to not do what they did. To focus on covenant, on relationship. So think about when you hear the word covenant, it's a very specific type of relationship. Because sometimes we think of covenant as being too legal a term or something. It's too, you know, kind of cold and impersonal. Covenant is the most intimate of relationships. That's why they call marriage, which is the most intimate of relationships, a marriage covenant. And so we have this, this level of intimacy, but we don't treat it with respect. We don't put our energy into it. Just the same thing when you see the Israelites all throughout. Did they spend a lot of time focusing on covenant? No. Did they take it for granted? Yes. Did they kind of just complacently put no energy into it? Yes. Did they have a, sometimes a callous disregard for the important aspects of it? Yes. Are we all guilty of that? Yes. Why is that? Because we're lacking the wisdom, the understanding, and the knowledge, the big why of why we're all doing all of this stuff. Oh, because all of you keep thinking, well, you know, those of you that are married, well, I just get a different husband or a different wife. Yeah, but you know what? Do you know what the percentages are of people who get divorced getting a second or third or fourth divorce? Super high. You know why? Because they're bringing them and all their junk into the next one. But it's easier to get the second divorce because after all, it was as hard as it was to do the first time, well, you've already done it, so what's the big deal? You can do it again. It's like people that used to church hop and you go around complaining about every place you went, forgetting that you brought you to every one of those places. People wonder, why is there such behavior in the messianic community, all the splitting and all of this. I said, because you brought that with you. You came from that. See, I didn't understand this. When I was in Judaism in New York, there was a few synagogues here and there, and the only time they opened up more was when they had too many people. Then I come down to the south, and I was in Knoxville, and I walked by with some people just walking and talking, and noticed there were four Baptist churches on four corners. And I said... That's weird. I said, what's with that? The guy said, that's Southern Baptist evangelism. <laughs> the joke being, he said, well, it was a family church, but then the brothers who were running it had a fight. So they opened one across the street. But then there was another fight, so they opened one across the street. You guys came with that stuff. Not just Baptists, all of the groups do this stuff. And so now you wonder why all that happens within the Messianic, all the splitting and fighting and blah, 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 blah. Because you learned how to do that. You know, I mean, it's so ingrained. It's like the joke about the guy. See, you know, now I'm going to act like a regular pastor telling a joke in the middle of the message. See that? The guy who's on a, on a deserted island. 
And a, and a plane shows up, and it's, you know, one of the planes that can land in the water and everything, and he goes, hey. He says, you know, I, I can get you out of here. I got a plane, and we can get you out of here. He says, how long have you been here? He said, well, I've been here for like almost 40 years. He said, I'm not really sure at this point that I could integrate back into the world. I'm kind of comfortable, and I'm okay, and I kind of got my life going. You know, if you had come way at the beginning, I would have been happy to leave, but I'm pretty okay. He says, great. He said, well, look, as I was flying in, I noticed there was a couple of buildings and things on the island. Maybe you can give me a quick tour. And the guy started showing him, well, this is where I set up like a gym and I work out and this is where I do this and that. He goes, and, and this is the church I go to over here and that one's the church I used to go to over there. Even one person by himself can do that. I know you're laughing, but this is as real as it gets. As absurd as that would be. Because I promise you, if there had been two people on the island, that would have been a truth and not a joke. We laugh only because there was only one person on the island. But you know if there was two and they got in a fight, that's exactly what would have happened. Why? Because we, we, we bring us into the mix and we are broken, damaged, foolish people. I didn't know what I was going to say dumb, but really it's more foolish. It's not that intelligence thing. It's a wisdom thing. You know, we are fools in the way we treat each other, in the way we treat our Creator, in the way we treat the incredible blessing of the instruction manual that we have. He gave us an instruction manual. How awesome is that? Do you spend time reading it? Do you spend time getting guidance? Look, any kind of subject that you would have studied going out through, through all of your life, did you not always have a teacher I mean, how many things did you teach yourself without going to somebody with questions? I don't care if you were homeschooled. I don't care if you're learning. At some point, you had a question. And you had to go find somebody who was either an expert or more experienced than you or whatever it was and ask questions. We all need some sort of guidance or mentoring, don't we? Because there's a lot of things I know that you know how to do. But at some point, you're going to run into that roadblock, that stumbling place where you don't know what to do. And you're going to go and say, who do I know that knows more about this than I do? I need a teacher or an instructor or a mentor or a guide to help me with this thing. But then we come into this and we think we don't need any help. You know, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead here just for a second, if I can find it real quickly. Okay, at some point as we go through Proverbs, we're going to get to a verse where Shlomo is talking about the problem of not listening to his teachers. And what a dumb mistake that was, what a foolish idea that was. And again, of course, the body has got enough people out there telling you you don't need teachers that, you know, that's part of the problem. And so we have to go through all this process. Are you guys enjoying Proverbs 3 so far? I'm only stalling because I really didn't write any notes last night and I was in Canada for three days. I'm kidding. But being there as I was for this celebration of life, this, this funeral sort of celebration of life that I was there for, it recrystallized for me in the conversations that I had that in the context of covenant, in the context of what we're doing in Proverbs, that there needs to be a, you know, a hammering home, this idea of the change that we need to go through that's not mechanical. The mechanics are easy enough to change. The reason you struggle with some of the mechanics is because you don't want to do them. That's not the mechanics being the problem. That's you emotionally being the problem. You're still stubbornly holding on to you and not transforming it to him. Because what did he say? Yeshua said, I do only everything my father says to do. Everything I say is what he tells me to say. Nothing I do does not fall in line with him. Are you there yet? No. And so that's our, our approach that's missing and transforming it to the image of the sun. Because some of you are trying to say, well, let's see what he did. You know, all those WWJD bracelets everybody had, blah, blah, blah. Well, you only get to see him do so much. That's not the point. We know he was a Torah-observant Jew. We know that he broke no commandments. He never sinned. Even though we don't see him keeping every one of them, there's not an opportunity where you see him doing every single thing in Torah. You don't see him going to the store reading the labels on the food. You understand what I'm saying, though. But it's about how he did it. How, in terms of his approach, what was the driver behind what he did? How did he see his role in the relationship that he had with his father? How do we see that relationship? And how does that then affect how we do or don't do what we're supposed to do or don't do?
That's the key. Now let's get to Proverbs chapter 3. My son, verse 1, do not forget my Torah. And let your heart watch over my commands. You see the approach there? He didn't just say mechanically to do these things. Let your heart, out of the abundance of the heart, everything outflows. If you struggle with Torah keeping, it's not because Torah is hard to keep. It's because you have a heart issue. That's why we did the 64 parts of the heart of the matter. If you think that was too intimidating to do, well, you're missing out. Go listen to it. You need it. It is the matter. Okay? The heart of the matter is the heart. It is at the root and the heart of all your issues. You will either be successful or not based on your heart. Because everything you do will come from there. It will be an outflow. It will be a physical manifestation of what's going on in your heart. Your desires. That's why your why has to be big enough. You know, we talk about this in sales all the time. Because people say, well, I want to, you know, retire and do this. Or I want to bring my wife home from work. Or I want to quit work. or I, Whatever you're, what you want to do, well, good. If you want it bad enough, you'll figure out how to do it. But how much do you want it? How badly do you want to transform? How badly do you want to hear, well done, good and trust with her? How badly do you want it? You're not going to want it badly enough unless you have a good reason why you want it. Some of you struggle and you think, I don't know why I struggle. I just can't seem to get into it. Because you haven't connected yet with a strong enough why. The why isn't real enough to you. You know why? <laughs> you know why? Because you're waiting for me to give you the why. You're waiting for it to come from somebody outside. The pastors you listen to, the teachers you listen to, the friends you talk to. No, you got to come up with and understand why are you doing this? You got to figure, I can't give you that. What drives you may not drive you. What drives you may not drive you. What drives you may not. Everybody's a little different. And so what drives you? And then work with that. Nurture that. Let that be as frontless before your eyes. See, we talk about in Deuteronomy, the, the Torah is supposed to be as front of before your eyes. Well, actually, he's talking about, and you shall love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your being. And that's what really needs to be in front of your eyes. All the rest of it will flow out of that. But why are you going to do that? Look, I know why I love my wife. That's a very real thing. I can see her. We can experience each other, okay? We have a creator that we can't see, can't touch. Don't get to hang out with and talk to in a very normal way that we're used to as a human being. So that love can be a whole different sort of thing. Now, it could have been taught to us in Christianity in a very emotionally driven way, something that we stir up and it's not really real, so to speak. It's real, but it's not, if you understand what I'm saying. But how do we get to that place where, same thing in marriages, where I love you so much that there's no thought of divorce or this or that and all and dealing with the nonsense because the love is what's the biggest, it's the real, it's the most real thing. But you know what? A lot of you are married to people you didn't vet real well and you kind of thought they were cute or whatever and you were young and dumb and did whatever and now, now you're thinking, mm. well, that's what we need to start teaching people to make better decisions in the first place because you weren't taught. You weren't taught how to select a spouse. Well, you were by watching all the other people do it foolishly, but you weren't in a formal way instructed. Two biggest things we do in life, we have no instruction whatsoever. Getting married and having children. Zero instruction, and you get to do these things. So you get to wreck all kinds of people's lives because you have no instruction. You wreck someone's life by marrying them, and then you wreck your children's lives because you have no idea what you're doing. And all you do is give them bad examples to follow so they can wreck the next generation's lives. What a wonderful pattern to follow. No wisdom, no understanding, no knowledge. That's not what Yahweh had intended. He intended us to be in a more tribal setting with the elders instructing the youngers in the appropriate way to do all of these things. Not being done today, is it? We have absentee parenting going on in the majority Parents are either not home, or if they're home, they're tuned out. Leave me alone. I had a hard day. Go do whatever you want to do. I want to sit here, vegetate, maybe have a drink or eat or whatever, and sit in front of the TV. Just go away. We're not focused on our responsibilities. 
because we don't understand our roles. Father, husband, son, daughter, wife, you know, uh, mother, all these roles that we have. And if you're going to bring a child into the world, you better know that you're going to be that parent. That's your job forever. It never stops. Doesn't matter how inconvenient it might get. Then you shouldn't have brought him into the world. See, but you brought a child into the world because either A, you weren't paying attention to what you were doing. That happens a lot. Or B, you wanted a child for what you thought would be for you. You totally forgot about your responsibility to them. Because you saw somebody with a baby and you got to hold the baby. This is so great to have a baby. They grow up. Not so cute anymore in the same way. Very cute in other ways. But you understand what I'm saying? Because the only uncute thing the baby does is poop. Or spit up. And that's not a big a deal after you get used to that. But when they start not listening and talking back and running off and doing stuff and all the other things that they start doing, that's not so cute. But you forget your responsibilities. Do you treat them like you want your father to treat you, your father in heaven? Now, you do correct them, but do you do it in love? Do you do it in anger? Are you violent? Are you crushing that relationship? Because you have a covenant relationship with them. They didn't actually voluntarily come into it. You made that covenant by bringing them into existence. That's why, by the way, Yahweh's covenants with us on his side are forever the ones that he gives that, he's, you know, that are not um, voluntarily interacted with because he brought us into existence. He knows he's responsible. That was his choice. It's the ones that we come into voluntarily together. He chose and we choose. Those, if we break it, he doesn't have any more responsibility on that level. However, because he created us, you notice he didn't just destroy us, he scattered us. He allowed us to learn our lessons, to realize that his ways work better than our ways, etc., through our own experiences. But out of love, he didn't just destroy us. After all, he brought us into existence. You understand? He owns that. We are always going to be his children, whether we're good children or bad children doesn't seem to change that. I mean, he still has us as his children. Same thing with your children, good or bad, they're yours. When you're married, your spouse is yours. Good or bad, they're yours. You gotta own that. Not own that meaning it's your responsibility. You change it, you fix it. Just remember you chose it. <laughs> and there were no guarantees that something wouldn't change. People do change. And then, and never in the areas you want them to. They change in areas you don't want them to. The areas you want them to, they never change. You gotta be okay with that. This is, this is what it's all about. It's hard. And it's about letting our heart watch over. He says, for the length of days and long life and peace, they add to you. So that's part of your why. The Torah. Now bear in mind that yes, this is Solomon talking to his son, but he's also in a, in a, in a metaphorical way here, speaking from Yahweh to all of us as his children. Because he talks about length of days and long life and peace. Solomon wasn't running through an ego problem here thinking that he was just giving something that was so valuable. He was talking about the instructions from above bringing long life and peace. He says, let not kindness and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. So I'm, I've tried to figure the right way of picturing this metaphor, binding them around your neck. Um... The, I don't know, if you have them, if you have them bound around your neck, possibly if you're not doing it right, they're going to choke you. <laughs> it's kind of like a collar that you put on an animal and you can pull. He says, look, you need to have these things to have the kindness and, and the truth around you. They need to be right there bound around you. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Kindness and truth. Now, by the way, we have a lot of problems in the body where people want to beat the snot out of each other. I don't know if that's the right way to say this on the video, but too bad. But we do this with truth. I know the truth and I'm going to... And we're just beating each other up with the truth. Where's the kindness part? He says, let not kindness and truth forsake you. Bind them and write them on the tablet of your heart. I think that Solomon, with all his wisdom, understood... 
that truth without kindness is going to be a problem. Can we all agree that we've seen that? Truth, when not combined with kindness, is not bringing the right approach to people. It's not bringing blessing. It's not going to have people receive your message. So nobody cares what truth you have if you're not kind about it. You know, I've often said, if you cannot share what you think is truth while maintaining the fruit of the Spirit, then you're already wrong. If you don't maintain your joy, or your peace, or your patience, or your kindness, or all of those things, your self-control, somebody's thinking, he didn't name them all. I know I didn't. That's not the point. Okay, the point is, if you can't maintain those things, or your love... By the way, if the other person's not feeling it, you're not doing it. You might think you're doing it, but if they're not feeling it, you're not doing it. Well, I was being loving. Yeah, but did they feel it? Because I know there's people here that I correct, but they know they still feel the love. Others don't. Because you know what? We haven't gotten the relationship where it needs to be yet. And so I have to be aware of that. If we don't have that relationship, then I have to realize that when I'm doing things, if you're not feeling the love, and that's what I intended, then I'm failing. But you have to feel the love to be successful. Oh, but I love you. Yeah, but I'm not feeling it. That doesn't mean you have to now bend and twist to what they think that means love. It means you have to figure out how to increase the level of the relationship so they can receive you the way you intend. Okay, so it's not adjusting and bending to them, but the relationship is lacking. Because if the relationship is where it needs to be, whatever you do, they will receive it knowing that you love them. Remember, it talks about what father that loves a son would not correct them. But correction is not fun while you're going through it. But you have to know that it's loving. Some of you have been corrected by people that were not loving. There was no love behind it. There never was. And so you were only getting violence or anger or viciousness. Which is why when I talk to parents, I say, look, you cannot correct your children in anger. Because all they're going to do is feel like you, are, you hate them. Mommy hates me. Daddy hates me. Somebody, the anger is all they're going to see. They're not going to see the, they, what you want them to see, which what Yahweh wants us to see is the level of disappointment. I'm disappointed in you. But you know what? That won't work either if you never let them know when you're pleased. Because then they're only going to always feel like, I'm a disappointment, what's the point? I'm always disappointing you, I might as well not even try. Because some of you are really good about telling them when they're disappointing, when there's a disappointment going on, but you're not real good at telling them when you're pleased. And so they don't feel the balance of that. So now the disappointment no longer has the leverage it should have. Because if I have a right relationship with you, and you look at me and like, and you're all disappointed... That will hurt me and crush me and motivate me to fix that. But if all I'm doing, no matter what, and I feel like it doesn't matter what I do, I'm always disappointed to you, well, then I don't even feel like there's a way that works. So what's the point? Why even try? So you have to be able to communicate on both levels. And so you need to write these things on the tablet of your heart. And by the way, you notice it says that you need to write them on the tablet of your heart. We talked about that in the Heart of the Matter series. Get away from that Christianity mindset teaching that somehow he does all of these things for you. He instructs you, you choose what you do with it. He says, son, write them on the tablet of your heart. He didn't say, son, allow Yahweh to write them on your heart. He says, you choose to write them on the tablet of your heart. By the way, that goes back to something that came up earlier and it wasn't on the recording, but it came up during the service where I talked about, and I want to put it here on the recording, allowing people to write on the tablets of your heart. That's your tablet. Don't let anybody write on it. Don't receive their counsel and let them tell you who you are and what you are and, and write on your tablet and tell you you're, you're no good or you're this or you're that or whatever. Why do you let other people write on your tablet? If we're sitting with each other and you've got your notebook out and I've got my notebook out and everything, are you going to be happy if I just reach over and start writing in your notebook? And worse than that, telling you you now have to own what I wrote? Why do you let others write on the tablets of your heart? You need to guard over that. 
He says, watch over my commands. Well, you watch over your heart, which is supposed to go where the commands go. Verse 1 talks about, let your heart watch over my commands, but you got to watch over what gets written on the tablet of your heart. Don't just let anybody and everybody write on it. Well, you know, my parents always told me I was no good and no worth and people of So why do you own that? Well, I don't know. So many people said it. It must be true. Why? What, what qualified them to tell you what kind of a loser they think you are? What was their qualifications for that? Well, it was my mother. It was my father. It was my brother. It was a, well, that's by default who they were. Yes. But did that qualify them to write on there? Maybe they were so screwed up that they, they were that way toxic to everybody. So why do you own that? Go find, did they treat you with love? No, not really. Well, then why are you owning everything else they gave you? Find someone to treat you with love. What love really looks like. Of course, the problem is, we have people that are growing up in houses, there's no love, so then they go looking for love in all the wrong places and all the wrong forms. See, parents, you want to really have your children be what they need to be and not do the dumb things. Well, you love on your children appropriately. And then they won't look for it somewhere else. They look for it somewhere else because they're going through this raging hormonal stage of life and they're already in an emotional deficit. So they got the physical urges and lusts from the hormones matching up as almost like a uh, turbocharge with the fact that they have this emotional deficit. You put those two things together and you've got children sleeping together and making babies. Or children getting into abusive relationships with other children who don't have any idea how to treat each other. And then you're going to start to think, this is what boys are like or this is what girls are like because after all, that's your only experience at that point. Because we're not doing the job we need to do as mothers and fathers. And so we end up with this terrible, terrible cycle. Man, this teaching is all over the place today. Just sort of free associating and just saying whatever I need to say. Let's get to verse 4. He says, look, if you bind them around your neck and write them on a tablet of your heart, thus you'll find favor... And good insight in the eyes of Elohim and man. See, that's how I know he's not just talking about his own opinions on things. He's talking about Yah's word in the Torah. Not just the instructions from a father. I give my children instructions. I expect them to obey it because it's coming from their father. As any parent would. But he's saying here, my son, do not forget my Torah. Which Torah is this? The one that in the eyes of Elohim and man will bring you favor and good, and good insight. Oh, but man doesn't seem to like what I'm doing. Well, that's true. Some of them. Remember, he's talking to his son in the context of already being part of the community. He's not talking about him just living outside in the, in the world of the Goyim, the Gentiles. He's talking to his son as part of the, the covenanted people. He says, if you do these things, you'll, re, you'll have favor and good insight in the eyes of Elohim and man. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Okay, so how are you going to trust in Yahweh with all heart and not leaning on your own understanding unless you have a teacher to help you validate your understanding? Now, don't look for the teacher that already validates your understanding. Find a teacher that's going to tell you either way whether your understanding is correct. Because you can find any, anyone, anything you have in your head, you can find somebody on YouTube that's teaching exactly what you believe. There's that much teaching out there. There's no problem finding someone out there that's going to teach you exactly what you already understand. And then you'll feel like, oh, see, I was right. Well, no, you've got to find someone that you actually have vetted, is qualified, and can tell you with authority whether or not you're right. Trust not on your own understanding. Don't lean on your understanding. Know him in all your ways. And he makes all your paths straight. Know him. Have a relationship with him in all that you do. That's the Vahafta. Okay, that's Deuteronomy 6. When you're talking about the going forward through life. What do we do? When you rise up, when you lie down, as you're walking by the way. Bind it as a frontless before your eyes. as Bind it on your hand. This should be evident in what you do, how you think, everything. That knowing relationship of putting him, loving him with all your heart, mind, being, etc. He says, know him, have a relationship with him in all your ways, and he will make all your paths straight. In other words, you'd be thinking, what would Yeshua do? Not this WWJD, what did he, you know, this Jesus character, whatever. He says, what would, you should be asking yourself, what would Yeshua do? 
What would he be doing right now? Would he be sitting here doing whatever dumb thing I'm doing? If I'm changing into him, would he be doing this thing? How would he treat people? How would he handle relationships? How would his emotional stability be? Would it be all over the place like a giant roller coaster? Would it be more stable? Would he be letting the emotions drive? Or letting the emotions under control be a natural flow out of the good things that are happening? Okay, nothing wrong with being emotional. Lots of things happen in life that make us respond in a very emotional way. But when we make choices and decisions because the emotions are driving, that's when we get in trouble. So hopefully that, because I'm not talking about us becoming sort of, you know, Vulcan, you know, emotionless beings or something. I'm talking about emotion not being the, the driver behind your actions but that your actions will create appropriate emotional responses. Okay? But it's that knowing him that's the problem. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. We'll finish here with that. Do not be wise in your own eyes. This is where I go. People tell me things like, well, when I tell them, well, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. And they say, well, you know, don't worry about that. Yahweh knows my heart. and that's, that's, that's you being wise in your own eyes. You've decided that you're okay. You've also decided that he'll think you're okay. And now you're being wise in your own eyes. So be careful with that. Okay, I'll give you another example. You're online right now, probably, some of you, listening to the teaching. And you've decided that something I said or something I'm doing, whatever, is wrong. That's not really the problem. But then you've decided that it's your job now to correct me and tell me why I'm wrong and everything else because you're being wise in your own eyes. And I've seen people do that often. You know, some you got to love it. Somebody posted from our group, who's your favorite teacher? Now, of course, the brilliant answer from all these brilliant people was, well, Yeshua, of course. Well, that wasn't the question. We all know we all look at Yeshua as our teacher. The person was trying to figure out what teachers you like that are in flesh and blood at the moment, right? And so a few people said whoever they said and everything else. But one person had to go in, well, I don't you know, like that teacher because their calendar's wrong or this other thing and blah, 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 blah. Why? Because now you've stepped out and, and established yourself as having authority and expertise above whoever that teacher is and that you're now correcting them in public. Why do we think that that's okay? Why is that? You know, there's a lot of teachers out, out there teaching things I don't agree with, and I do not, in public, go ahead on their, on their post there, or wherever their name comes up, trying to point out or on their videos where they're wrong. They're not under my authority. In order to correct me, or for me to correct you, we need to have a relationship. Stop correcting people without relationship. Well, you know, I've listened to this teacher once or twice, and I think I met him once. That's not a relationship. Because people say, well, about that, about me. Well, you know, I know I've, I've met him once and I, you know, often it's a person I don't even remember meeting. That's not the point. But there's no relationship. If you counsel with me and I don't have a relationship with you, I will be much more, I'll be less specific about what I instruct you to do and more guiding you to just help you make decisions than if we have a relationship that allows me to tell you what you need to not do or do. Does that make sense? Based on the level of our relationship. If our relationship is appropriate, I'll tell you, you need to stop that and knock that off. If it's not, I'll say, look, this is guidance about why you may want to consider that that's probably not the best idea to do that. That's based on the level of our relationship. Because in a certain level of relationship, you're not expecting me to give you that because you'll say to me, but Rabbi, what do I need to do? Or is this right or is this wrong? Don't give me that, blah, blah, blah. I need... The relationship we have, you need, I need that instruction. Do I need to stop doing this or start whatever it is? Not that you don't make decisions yourself, but you're needing clarity from that person based on the level of relationship. Did that make sense? Okay. Otherwise, you fall into the trap of being wise in your own eyes. The people that are out there searching for teachings that match up with what they already believe are essentially being wise in their own eyes. Because they already think they figured it out. They just want to be able to defend it by saying, well, you know, I believe this, and by the way, so does such and such. I've been to places where I've been a speaker, and it's funny and amazing to me how often, well, every time, really, people will come up to me to get my opinion on their pet thing, 
because they're hoping I'll agree with them and they can now go around and tell everybody, hey, the guest speaker agreed with me. And so I don't play the game. You know, it happened with the calendar once. I was at a, at a Sukkot. And I'm sitting at a campfire and we're having dinner before I was going to speak. Some people invited me to sit with them. I, I didn't know very well. And across from the fire, somebody goes, well, what do you think about the calendar? Blah, 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 blah. And so I said, I think you're all wrong. He got up. He was all bowed up, ready to... I said, what do you mean you think we're all wrong? He said, you're all wrong. Why? Because none of you that make it an issue and ask the question seem to be able to maintain your fruit of the Spirit when you talk about it like you're doing right now. So therefore, you're wrong. Didn't like my answer. Okay, so that's our problem though. We want to be wise in our own eyes. He says, fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. I think he's even hinting that trying to do it with own... with with your own eyes, being wise in your own eyes, that that's actually going to lead you into evil. Evil is doing anything that's against what Yahweh says. So you're going to convince yourself that Yahweh said something when he didn't say it, or he meant something when he didn't mean it, or he wanted you to do something a certain way when that's not the way he wanted it. That's, that's actually evil. Scriptural evil is anytime you do anything that goes against what he designed it to be used for, or function, or how it's supposed to be done. Okay? It's not just limited to rape, murder, you know, whatever, Holocaust thing. That is evil, but we limit it sometimes to those overtly obvious things. Okay, when he talks about Israel being evil, not doing the Sabbath for the land was called evil. How often do you think because somebody didn't grow their crops right and leave the land fallow, oh, you evil person. But Yahweh called it evil because by his definition, it's not the way he designed it to work. So therefore, it's called evil. All right, so we got into six verses, seven verses of chapter three. And I was planning to get a lot more done, which is, of course, what I say every week. Hopefully this was useful and of value today and needed to be said. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just want to lift you up and appreciate all the blessings and abundance that you give us in our lives and especially the abundance of information that we can then take and use wisdom to gain a relationship with the information which will give us a relationship with you. Father, help us to learn and to study and get our why big, why we're doing this, and understand why. Why did you do what you're doing? What was your plan, and how do we fit into it? And why should we care about these things and focus on them? And why would you offer us eternal life? All these whys. You know, we get all wrapped up on the hows, like arguing about how the calendar and how this and how that. But you know what? If we're not doing it with the right why, getting it right mechanically isn't going to do us any good anyway. So, Father, we come to you asking for you to help us to trust in you with all our heart and not lean on our own understandings so that we can know you and have a relationship with you in all of our ways and that you can make all our paths straight. So, Father, we come to you very humbly asking for you to work with us to help us in the transformation process very patiently with how slow we're moving. And, Father, we would learn to have the love to receive from you and be able to then share that love with others. So, Father, we thank you, we praise you, we give you all glory and all honor. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, amen, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to Now is the Time with Steve Berkson here on Hebrew Nation Radio. Now is the Time Radio is a production of MTOI, Messianic Torah Observant Israel. For more information, visit mtoi.org.